Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Over the last few weeks, as the pandemic has transformed life, we've had a number of conversations about what I've called the victory of the virtual. Uh, there seems almost disappearance of the physical world, uh, replaced by Zoom conferences and everything going online. The final victory of Silicon Valley, but there may be one area that is holding out. It's an ironic area. It's one that perhaps some of us wouldn't have expected. But one thing we seem still to be doing, or at least I'm doing, is driving. Uh, The car is a place, perhaps not for the social, but a place that we can escape the virtual world uh, and enjoy the road. I just uh, illegally, I shouldn't say this online, but illegally drove down from the Bay Area to uh, to Santa Barbara for the weekend. Um, and I really enjoyed the freedom of the drive, particularly on one, uh, Route 1 in California, which is one of the most beautiful roads in the, ro- uh, one of the most beautiful roads in the world. Matthew B. Crawford um, is developing or has developed, should I say, a a philosophy of driving. He's the author of an intriguing new book, Why We Drive, Toward a Philosophy of the Open World. Uh, Matt, uh, is driving holding up in the pandemic? Well, as you've probably noticed, at least for a while, the roads were pretty empty. So it was kind of a good time to drive one of those iconic roads, like you just mentioned, Highway 1, which is normally clogged with tourists. Um, I took a a drive down there myself on a motorcycle, and yeah, it's spectacular. Um, And I I actually find myself going out and sitting in my car in the driveway just to get away from my family for a little bit. I mean, we're so on top of one another these days with the, the lockdown. You, in your book, you define driving as humanism. There'll be a lot of people listening to that who will be horrified by that. A lot of people assume that driving and car culture, particularly in the United States, is anti-humanist. What do you mean by driving as humanism? Well, yeah, there is a long tradition of sort of the new urbanism that regards cars as the enemy. And I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to that. I mean, cars have transformed the urban landscape in ways that are largely lamentable. But um, so I find driving just a very interesting activity that displays all kinds of capacities um, that somehow point to uh, what it means to be human. So one thing that interests me is the kind of cooperation uh, and improvisation you see at an urban intersection. that's more the case in a place like Rome, you know, where they, there's hardly any traffic rules that really obtain and people are just kind of working things out on the fly. But it's an interesting case of um, a kind of social trust 
that you see where we're willing to kind of presume um, competence on the part of our fellow citizens. And it's, I mean, as a political theorist, that's interesting. It's one of the few uh, areas where you see that kind of trust in action. Do you see political culture sort of manifesting itself in, in, in the habits of driving? I was thinking America, uh, the, the libertarian roots of, of its politics are manifested by people's refusal to either acknowledge any kind of lane discipline or indicate. <laughs> yeah, or use the mirror, which is sort of an, an, exo right. an exotic implement. Like, what right, is because no one in America is willing to look backwards, right? <laughs> That's right. We're a, we're a forward-looking people. Yeah, and you know the flip side of that sort of sociality that I mentioned uh, at an intersection that, you know, there's the dark side, which is the road rage, which um, it's, you know, when you're in your car, uh, other people in their cars, you can't tell where their attention is directed. Um, we have very little information to go on. So we're kind of in this interpretive process situation where we have to make sense of others' behavior. It's hard to make your movement sort of understood what your intention is. And that can sometimes spiral down to this mutually assured misunderstanding and people get uh, very, very angry. Uh, I'm pleased you brought up Rome. I'm the proud owner of an Alfa Romeo Giulia, which um, the only unfortunate thing about that, if anyone from Alfa Romeo is listening to this, is that they don't sell the geared version in the US, so I have to have an automatic. Yeah. But it is an extremely uh, pleasant, one might even say sexy car to drive, which accounts for my uh, love of driving around California. Your book and your philosophy of driving is very much rooted, I think, in a, in a kind of a, a, a rentian notion of driving as activity. Is that fair? And the car itself becomes almost incorporated into the human being. Yeah. It's... Um... I mean, if you think about the process of human development for a toddler, initially their own body is this kind of alien thing. They don't know how to use it. They can't control it. Um, and then eventually the child grows into the body. It becomes a kind of seamless uh, extension of their intention. And something very similar happens uh, when you, you know, for example, learn to ride a bicycle. Initially it's obtrusive and then it, you eventually incorporate it. Um, and I think using a car or a motorcycle is something similar. It, it becomes a, almost like a prosthetic. Um, and, and at each stage of our growing mobility, you know, first learning to ride a bicycle and maybe a skateboard, et cetera, you feel this, um, kind of expansion of your bodily powers and it can be intoxicating. Nietzsche said that joy is the feeling of your powers expanding. And I think that gets to um, that experience of childhood play when a kid is um, kind of growing into their body. And it's interesting with technology, that possibility kind of gets extended out indefinitely into, uh, I mean, at the very highest level, you see it in motorsport where driving is taken to an extraordinary level of skill. Uh, so in the book, Why We Drive, I, I spend some time in various auto 
automotive subcultures and sort of grassroots motorsports trying to get a handle on um, on what these people are up to. If there's an enemy in the book, it's Silicon Valley and driverless cars. Do you see driverless cars? And, and I'm quoting you. He said, "Driverless cars are." A one instance in the shift in our relationship with the physical world. Do you see driverless cars as essentially undermining human agency? Well, it is one instance of the shift toward uh, greater passivity and dependence, where the demands of competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. And, um, well, let me just by way of illustrating this, there was a there was a case where a Google car <clears throat> came up on an intersection, and this was a four-way stop. And so it's it stopped and waited for the other cars to come to a complete stop before going through, uh, because that's what they're programmed to do, right? They are rule followers. But of course, that's not what people do at an intersection. Um, you know, they may not come to a complete stop. So what happened is the Google car just froze and kind of got paralyzed and just melted down there at the intersection. And it's interesting, the the guy in charge, uh, the sort of chief Google engineer for driverless cars, he said that what he had learned from the incident is that human beings need to be less idiotic, by which he meant they need to be more like robots. <clears throat> and that's a conclusion that I think comes very easily if you regard the mind as basically <clears throat> an inferior version of a computer, which is, of course, that's an assumption that comes um, comes naturally if you think that what reason consists of is following rules. But what we do is, again, there's this kind of socially realized form of intelligence that is improvisational. We work things out. Um, it's a little bit messy. It's more like the kind of um, order that you see almost in an organic system. But for the most part, it works just fine. And um, But from the perspective of... Uh, the sort of technocratic dream of perfect order, it looks like chaos and it looks like idiocy and it needs to be replaced with a kind of machine-generated certainty. So there's a kind of anti-humanism there. And it's leading, as you suggest, to the, the politics of technocracy, which is by definition anti-democratic. It's uh, in, 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 the, in the philosophical tradition, which you know better than I do, it perhaps stems from Bentham and utilitarianism and, and, and as you say, reduces the mind to just an inferior version of the computer. Yeah. And, you know, since we're not going to become computers, and, or at least <laughs> I hope not, the alternative that's offered, I mean, the only real alternative to that is for human beings to just step out of the way to clear the way for the robot cars. Because in fact, for these two forms of intelligence the artificial and the human, to share the road together uh, is a very dim prospect. That's something that's become very clear in uh, the research surrounding driverless cars. So what that means is it's kind of an all or nothing thing, uh, which reveals this totalizing logic of automation, given that these are, you know, artificial and human intelligence are so sort of different in the way they operate. There's not... Uh, it's very difficult to see them sharing the road together. 
Uh, so what we're really talking about then is a massive transfer of wealth um, and of human agency to a, a small sort of cartel of tech firms who want to remake our infrastructure of mobility according to uh, their own purposes. And you mention in your book Shoshana Zuboff's uh, Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Shoshana's been on the show and I know oh, you very yeah. much uh, in her camp. Uh, I know, Matt, that you're, as well as a philosophy, you're also deeply interested in politics. You mention uh, Tocqueville quite a lot in the book. Uh, the, 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 the subtitle of the book is Towards a Philosophy of the Open Road. But might an alternative si subtitle be Towards a Politics of the Open Road? What is the political philosophy of the open road? Because it's not really a hardcore libertarianism, is it? No, it's more of a uh, concern to preserve the space for intelligent human action because that space is getting colonized by a new form of political economy that Shoshana Zuboff parses brilliantly in the age of surveillance capitalism, where sort of all of our movements through the world are surveilled for the sake of generating behavioral data, which is then used to create these prediction products, uh, that is predictions about our future behavior, which are traded on this behavioral futures market. Um, I won't rehearse her whole argument, but in any case, the, it's become clear that the push for smart devices, you know, one of which is uh, transforming the car into a, into a device, the point of that kind of automation is, is very much to make our movements fully um, sort of uniform and trackable for the sake of these kind of behavioral futures markets. Um, so do you think your listeners are, are familiar with Zuboff's argument? Uh, I think, well, if they're not, they should uh, certainly read the book and listen to my interview. Uh, but what about this, this, this politics of the open road? Is it, is it a kind of mobile Tocquevillian argument? Well, again, it's, it's a kind of seeing that it's a politics that proceeds from the recognition that, um, again, the space for intelligent human action and uh, sort of individual discretion is, is shrinking. And, um, and that shows up in a lot of different areas. So you're right, it doesn't fit into a straightforward kind of libertarian argument or or communitarian, but it, it kind of combines elements of both. And, and ultimately, it's a, a concern for um, an atrophy of something that is absolutely fundamental, which is human agency, and in particular, the kind of agency, or rather skill or competence that arises from being uh, directly engaged with a world that pushes back against you and leads to the development of real competence. Yeah, and in your book, you have some wonderful descriptions of ways in which people drive with others collectively in a responsible way without being annoyingly communitarian, that it's rooted in the skill of driving. Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly minimal kind of community that you see on the road. It's not like a, f a sort of fully, um, you know, it's not the kind of thing that... Um, 
usually excites political theorists, but I find it significant as, um, again, an expression of a kind of a kind of social solidarity. Let me put it this way: uh, when you're leaned into a blind curve on a motorcycle on a two-lane road, and you're trusting that some truck hasn't crossed the yellow line <clears throat> and is barreling towards you, that, that to me that's an interesting case of a certain kind of trust underlying our normal interactions in society. And I, I look to that for clues for the revival of social trust more broadly. And that's, that's a concern that you don't really find articulated among libertarians. The real nightmare, I think, though, in your book, the book itself isn't a nightmare, but the, <laughs> the nightmare you, uh, you lay out is, is almost in a footnote at the end when you, you're, you're writing about Google's influence on the world, particularly in terms of self-driving cars. And you imagine a future, and I don't think this is actually the future. I think this is today. A future where Larry and Sergey, the two multi-billionaire co-founders of Google, drive up and down Route 1 in uh, analog Ferraris, you know, million-dollar Ferraris, probably recreated from the 1950s by mechanics like you. Their middle managers are maybe in Teslas or Alfa Romeos and everyone else in self-driving cars. It's clear, it seems to me, that analog is attractive to the wealthy. That the, 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 the physical experience of driving cars or handwriting or listening to vinyl records, this is a very attractive thing in the digital world. But how do we make sure that it's democratized? How do we make sure that that the geared car doesn't simply become the privilege of multi-billionaires like, Sari, uh, like Larry and Sergey in the future. Well, just to spell out the logic of that, um, the reason why uh, sort of analog devices, as you, as you just put it, or in other words, um, tools and implements that have to justify their cost on their own merits rather than serving as kind of portals to the surveillance economy. Um, because the surveillance economy is so uh, attractive because it re it's uh, trafficking in this resource that is behavioral data that is not protected by law and therefore it's free. What that means is that the kind of regular old stuff, you know, a washing machine that's not connected to the internet can't compete um, with the smart devices, which the purpose of which devices is to serve as a kind of uh, entry into your life to gather behavioral data and then sell it. And that's just way easier than making something that works <laughs> and simply does what it claims to do, namely wash your freaking clothes. You know what I'm saying? Like the first time you heard of an internet-enabled rectal thermometer, you might have thought to yourself, well, why does a rectal thermometer need enabling by the internet? And the answer, of course, is that it doesn't. But the internet needs to know the temperature inside your rectum. So get used to it. So is the solution to this making sure that the digital isn't free, recalibrating the economy of the surveillance capitalism so that we're actually really paying for, for this supposedly free stuff? 
or is it somehow figuring out a way to scale analog? Mm. Well, <laughs> scaling analog, that another name for that would be the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, we did that 100 years ago, and it seemed to work out pretty well as a form of political economy. Well, I mean, with mass, some massive caveats about... Uh, <laughs> that's a whole nother history, right? And well, we should get into that though. But the point is that, you know, after World War II, there was a kind of accommodation between labor and capital that led to this, you know, really just maybe two or three decades of a really thriving middle class. And that accommodation was kind of thrown out the window after the Cold War, where we had globalization, which was really a kind of internationalization of the division of labor. And the, uh, the upshot of that was bye-bye middle class, essentially. Usually, Matt, uh, in these conversations, I am by asking people uh, their, their book suggestion uh, for further reading. And before we started recording, you, I told you, I warned you in advance, and you said, well, I have miserable taste. So maybe we should skip the book suggestion. <laughs> Because uh, you're not really, a, you, you sometimes seem a miserable person, but you're not really. <laughs> and my, my guess is that you're at your best, at your least miserable, at your most euphoric when you're driving. So a couple of questions to end with. Firstly, your favorite vehicle. Mm. And secondly, your favorite drive. Oh, the favorite drive is easy since moving back to the Bay Area. It's Route 9 through the Santa Cruz Mountains. And whoever laid out that road uh, was a, some kind of um, Leonardo of road design because it's just it's spectacular. So I've been making a study of that road on, on a motorcycle, but I... I daydream about driving it on this car that I've been building for 10 years. It's an old VW bug, radically modified. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the hope that sustains me, driving that car on that road. Uh, this should come with a parental warning that it's an incredibly dangerous road, right? I mean, how many people what? get killed on that, isn't it? Or, or is that the other road from San Jose to Santa Cruz? Yeah, yeah, you're thinking of of Highway 17, which is right, right. that's a white knuckle ride because it's it's twisty, but it's moving at 70 miles an hour, and uh, yeah, that that one scares me. But no, Route Nine is just uh, it's it's heavenly. I I recommend it. And where would you get on Route? Where for for, for local people, how do you get onto Route Nine? Where do, where do you get on in San Jose? Well, now I'm of two minds. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, okay, <laughs> but you can find it on a map. It's there. And then your perfect car is... Uh, the one I'm building, yeah. The one I'm building. Uh, and I guess we have, to, we have to throw in your book recommendations since this is a, a Lit Hub show. Finally, not too miserable, Matt. Surely there's a, there's, there's a book that will cheer us up in our, in our generally miserable condition of, of the pandemic and political upheaval and everything else that's going on at the moment. Yeah. Well... Um... How about a novel? I recommend um, Hilary Mantel, Wolf Hall. Uh, it's about Henry VIII and Thomas More and that whole world. And uh, it's just a fantastic bit of, of English language to begin with and a, a perspective uh, from a different time that's so 
fresh and sort of makes you see your own time in a different light. Yeah, and I think if Thomas Cromwell had been a car driver, he would have driven an Alpha, right? <laughs> sure, just like Andrew Keane. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Keane. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.